0: Welcome to Indie Insider presented by Blackshell Media. This is the weekly show where we talk with video game developers and professionals about their stories, their advice for others, and their thoughts on the indie video game industry. I'm Logan Schultz, and on today's show I sit down and talk with Dirk Niemeyer, host of the Game Design Roundtable and creative director for Artana, a company focused on producing physical board and card games. We chat about the success of his podcast, the constant struggles of overseeing a company, what it takes to pursue your dreams, and when it's time to decide to move on. As always, if you have thoughts, questions, or ideas on what we should do next, shoot me an email at logan at blackshowmedia.com. You can also find the most up-to-date news on the Indian Insider Podcast on Twitter by following at Logan A. Schultz. And now, Dirk Niemeyer. Welcome to another episode of Indie Insider, and today I'm extremely excited because there are times when you get to talk to somebody whose work you really look up to, and this is one of those times for me. I am talking with Dirk Niemeyer. He is uh, one of the hosts of the Game Design Roundtable podcast. Dirk, how's it going? It's going very well. Thanks for having me, Logan. I'm extremely excited to chat with you with uh, another game design podcaster. Um, it seems like such a niche, but your show has been around for a while. It's
1: a fairly successful show. Thanks. Yeah, you know, we've been, uh, I'll probably get the years wrong, but we're, we're creeping up on 200 episodes. I think we've been around since maybe 2012 or 2013 and uh, it's it's fun. I mean, I, I love doing it. Uh, we're still cranking away and uh, no sign of stopping. <laughs> You've been around since the beginning of the show, correct? That's right. Yeah, I started the show along with John Schaefer, who was the designer of Civilization Five, And at the time we started the show, he was just striking out on his own to do, um, you know, his own game design company. And so we took up the mantle together because I was pretty new myself in, in pursuing my own indie game design dreams. And now you're approaching 200 episodes. How does that feel to be, you know, doing this for so long and have this be such a big part of your life? i don't think about it too much you know um i it's funny I, I, a fan of the show who's who's become a friend emailed me a couple months ago. We were talking about some things with with games I was working on and with my company, and I was sort of um I was sort of frustrated from a marketing perspective and and how it 's hard to get the word out on things and he said you understand that people know you more for your podcast than your games right and he said that, and it, it hurt, but it also was eye-opening. I was like, wow, really? You know? um, because to me, the podcast is something I, I, I did because I wanted to learn from the guests who came on. It was sort of my process of going from someone who was not trained in game design and just kind of jumped into it with both feet to you know hopefully someone who is uh, smarter and, and better. The podcast was just sort of a tool that way. And so to, to have someone say, look, you know, this is creating a reputation for you um, was a little enlightening because it's just not something I had thought about before then. It's just something I enjoyed doing.
0: Absolutely. Well, for those who might not know uh, or be familiar with the Game Design Roundtable podcast, can you uh, give us just a bit of context? What is the show? What's the format of this show? And, and what's your approach to it?
1: Sure. So it's a show uh, for game designers by game designers. And we have a, a rotating group of sort of five co-hosts. Um, there's Myself, there's David Heron, Harrison Pink, Catherine Himes, and Rob Davio. And we I'm, I'm on every show, um, I, just because somebody needs to be the cat herder, and, and that's me. I'm, I'm happy to do it. <laughs> it's basically uh, me and one of the other, either one or two of the other co-hosts. And if it's uh, just one of the other co-hosts, we'll have an outside guest that we're interviewing as well. So the shows bounce back and forth from bringing on another person to sort of talk game design with, um, and sort of question and answer episodes, we've been really blessed to get um, dozens, if not hundreds, of listener questions over the years, and so we we like to tackle those on air.
0: Tell me a little bit more about you, Dirk. Um, you mentioned that you know you started this uh, podcast, you know, what a few years ago now, um, 2012, 2013, right? Yeah, um, yeah, five-ish years ago. Five-ish years ago. Um, but you were just starting in game development how did you decide that that's what you wanted to do and that's the direction you wanted to go?
1: Yeah, so I, I owned a software design company in Silicon Valley. And uh, during the recession, um, it went from, you know, a company with, with 20 people that was doing very well um, to a company that was, was completely falling apart. And, you know, in the process, in order to make sure everyone got paid and, um, you know, there weren't weren't any... Outstanding debts, yada yada yada. It got to the point where every everything burnt down. Everybody had to leave, and I was reduced to just five thousand dollars in my checking account. I was I was basically completely wiped out, and that was, of course, a a difficult, horrible psychic process. And at some point in in that process, I woke up one morning with the idea for a game, and. I needed a creative outlet. I needed something that was positive and good in my life um, as I tried to, to navigate this really sad time, and I just started working on that game, and I had no idea what I was doing, and it just kind of went from there.
0: Tell me a little bit about this company that you owned. I actually had no idea that you owned a software company in Silicon Valley.
1: How did you end up doing that? Oh God, it's this is a long story. I mean, the, <laughs> the the short answer is I wrote an article for an online publication called Boxes and Arrows back in I want to say 2002, and uh, one of the commenters on it um, said, you know, this is the worst thing I've ever read. You're totally stupid. and Here's why. And um, you know, my I-, I like to engage smart um, criticism um, positively, so I sort of engaged with this person. Went back and forth, and. You know, at the end of it, he was like, God, you know, usually when I come at people, they run away screaming, but this was great. And I learned some stuff too. So we kind of became friends and started working together. And it turned out that fellow was um, the first designer hired at Adobe in 1995. He built the entire design organization at Adobe. Uh, His name was Andre Horazamchuk. It still is his name. He just isn't (laughs) at Adobe anymore. Um, But, you know, there was some point in, in our friendship when I was talking to Andre about the design firm I wanted to build someday as I was sort of unhappily employed at other software design firms and at some point he said you know what Dirk I want to do that too why don't you come on out here and let's do it together and so we started doing that in 2004 and that was a hell of a ride you know my years in in Silicon Valley are certainly some of the the happiest um, in my life but that's kind of how that came about. So jumping around in the timeline of Dirk
0: Niemeyer just a bit, um, your company burned out, Um, you were spent, uh, you know, going from owning your own um, software design company in Silicon Valley to making a tabletop game seems um, like a bit of a jump.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a a fair question. Um, You know, my my pattern in life from the time I was a little boy to even today is that I'll take deep dives into hobbies for a period of time, and for some number of years, you know, two to five being the end, um, like, all of my free time will just be dominated by that. And, um, you know, I I have uh, two sons who had sort of introduced me to settlers of Catan, you know, in the early 2000s or so. I had kind of been out of tabletop games, um, you know, from maybe my mid to late teens forward. And my, my son's kind of brought those back onto the radar for me. And that was just sort of a family thing. But what was happening at the same time was my, my outside, um, interest had gone to poker during the poker boom from like, uh, I don't know, 2002 to maybe 2007, 2008. And it was to the point where, you know, alongside running the software company, I was sort of a semi-professional player. I I was out, they have fantastic poker rooms in Silicon Valley so I would go you know all weekend every weekend um, some nights during the week and certainly whenever there's a holiday I'd be I'd be camped there um, just just playing poker and I had a lot of um, cash game success I wasn't as good of a tournament player but I won a, a, a fairly substantial tournament um, <laughs> and just did very well with poker but I had this process where I made a huge amount of money at poker and then over a period of time I lost a huge amount of money. And there was some, there was one time when I was driving back from the casino and I, I was saying to myself, you know, I just lost enough money in like, I don't know what the session length was, maybe seven hours. I just lost enough money in seven hours to buy 60 board games that would last me for the rest of my life. And I was like, I'm doing the wrong thing with my time here. Like this, <laughs> some something's, something's not right um and so you know that sort of pivoted me from poker into tabletop games and you know I'm a creator I'm really not a consumer I like to make things so once I was in tabletop games I think it was just sort of it was just sort of a matter of time before I I, you know the dots connected and I was like hey let's let's make this stuff instead of play it so did you end up uh I guess starting a company or did you make a game independently what did that look like yeah, I started making a game independently. My first game was called Road to Enlightenment. And, you know, I, I really didn't know what I was doing. Like looking back now, um, I don't know how familiar you are with tabletop game process, but instead of, um, you know, instead of sort of fully making the game, you know, by some best practice, I basically designed the game and released it without doing any development on it whatsoever. Um, and, you know, it's just the the ignorance of of... <laughs> of um, me, uh, so you know, I released a game with all these really interesting ideas, some good things going on, but some things that were were pretty flawed because it hadn't been developed at all. Um, and I just kept making games at that point. You know, um, I, there's just it, it, I tend to make games about history and science and and factual things, and so the thing I like to say, which is is true, is basically any time I read a book, by the time I'm done with the book, I have a game designed on that theme in my mind. So. Once I was infected with game design, it was like as I went through the world experiencing things, designs were just sort of dropping out of me as a natural byproduct of that. And doing that was something that I certainly creatively enjoyed. So um, I, you know, went on with sort of releasing, independently releasing games. I was calling myself, you know, Conquistador Games at that time. And then, um, and then more recently, uh, got working with a business partner to start a game company Artana and um sort of off and on have been acting like a real company uh or you know sometimes it's more hobbyish as well but um you know trying to trying to just make uh make really cool games so how many games do you think you've released at this point yeah i I don't know i'm I'm really bad on details um i've probably <laughs> I've probably eight probably seven eight games something like that okay. Yeah, approaching ten.
0: Well, I asked because it sounds like you really took more of a learning by doing approach to uh, game design, and you know, even you know, starting a game development company. Um, so I was curious how many you had made, and at what point you started to kind of figure things out past you know, Road to Enlightenment, and and you know, your your shortcomings therein.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's an I would call it an incremental process. Um, you know, I think certainly by now, like I understand what proper development looks like. To to speak to that specific um, failing in in road, but I mean, it was probably, I don't know, it was probably my fourth or fifth game before I had a game that was probably sort of correctly developed, um, or nearly correctly developed, let's say. <laughs> um, so it, you know, it's it's definitely been an iterative process, not a sudden process, and. Certainly, part of it is ignorance, um, which I can no longer claim, and it's no longer the case. But then, part of it too is skill set and desire. Um, for me, you know, I'm I'm most motivated during the the more um, inventionary parts, um, what I would consider the more creative parts, where the changes are bigger, they're more paradigmatic, and they're not about tuning and little mechanics in, in different ways. like those. It's just the way my brain works and consequently what, what I like to do and what I don't like to do. So I'm sort of wired in a way that if I'm left on my own to do something, it will probably end up being underdeveloped regardless of my best intentions. And so one of the challenges for me is, you know, whether it be through my company or through just collaborations in a little more um, a little more ad hoc way, um, you know, bring other people into the process who can um, thrive in those environments, who really enjoy those environments in ways that I don't, and to really, really up the quality of the things I'm trying to help create.
0: That's something that I want to touch on. Is you mentioned collaborations and and working with other people um, as opposed to you know being left to your own devices um, too long. How do you find people, and how do you decide what people you want to surround yourself with, and who push you to be the most efficient and most effective designer possible.
1: Yeah. You know, I don't have a smart answer to that question. And what I mean (laughs) by it is, is the, the people who I I do and have worked with collaboratively are just the people who've been closest to me or who I've bumped into basically. Like, um, I, I don't have like a best practice process for going about it because the, the people who, who've sort of come into my orbit have done so just because they're friends or friends of friends or, or something like that like I could intellectually sit down and like write out a job description for for like what, what would be the best sort of collaborator to complement me and for us to together have have you know sort of the best the best output but also in the way that's sort of the most enjoyable and natural for for both or all of us um, but I, I've just never been that systematic about it and um, And so, so yeah, you know, it's, it's probably not the best, the best way to go about it, but it certainly is the path of least resistance, let's say.
0: Sure. And and there's some validity to that, right? I mean, clearly, you've found people to work with, um, who, uh, it's just been clear to you that that was that was going to be right in that moment. And and that's okay. It doesn't need to be, you know, necessarily a, a system or a process every time.
1: That 's true that's true, although I mean the the downside is you know I mean with the people i've worked with it's been a, it's been a very mixed bag of compatibility or alignment in different cases, and sometimes it's amazing and sometimes it's just not as good and so if if I was more deliberate upfront, maybe I could have avoided some of the situations that weren't as as happy um, weren't as productive uh, before I get too far away from this topic, how do you deal with those
0: um interactions that fall maybe more into the negative camp? How do you or how did you navigate working with somebody when your collaboration, you know, wasn't clicking correctly?
1: Yeah, um, the the same mistakes that I make in my personal life, um, I would say that I make in this area, which is to <laughs> say um, I, I, I like things to work, you know, I, I see the best in people and even when things are, are rocky, um, you know, I'm not seeing it so much as a fault or problem with the person, but a problem with the process and so I'll I'll often stay far too long, um, trying to make something work, uh, even though you know probably probably there should be a pivot made um, beforehand. But analytically, like you know logically in my in my brain, I, I think it's smarter, at least in professional, probably in personal as well, to be a little bit um, quicker around saying, you know what, I like you. There's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with me. But this this just isn't isn't great. And we probably should go in different directions. I, I just, in my life, I haven't been good at, um, at sort of walking that talk. But if I were giving advice, that would certainly be the kind of advice I would give. Sure. And I think that's so important that you,
0: you can at least be self-aware of that. You know, we all deal with those types of struggles, those, um, you know, negative collaborations with people. Um, but, but it's great that, you know, you're at least aware of, uh, and can share with other people based on, you know, the experiences that you've had. It's fantastic. And obviously, that's part of what your entire podcast is built around, right? Is talking, sharing experiences and stories with with other people, um, much like the Indie Insider podcast. Um, so I want to talk a little bit more about the podcast, the Game Design Roundtable. Um, but before we get to that, uh, just to mention it, you're actually the host of another podcast as well, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. My other show is called The Digital Life. And uh, I, uh, there's two of us who co-hosted myself and a guy named Jonathan Follett. And that's a show about futurism. Um, you know, we were talking about, um, you know, food technology last week. Um, before that, we were talking about cybersecurity. And before that, we were talking about AI and artificial life. So um, just looking at like emerging technologies and what the digital future is going to look like for us have you seen you
0: know as much response with that podcast as you had with the game design podcast which is pretty popular
1: yeah yeah i've got to say um you know the digital life has has um you know has a a modest but consistent subscriber base but it's nowhere near the game design round table (laughs) Um, we've been very blessed to have an, an incredibly large and loyal listenership um to the show i'm i'm Continually surprised and, and deeply appreciative for it. Well,
0: let's go ahead and talk about the game design roundtable. Um, I actually looked it up. I think your first episode aired November fourteenth, twenty twelve. Um, since yep, we were talking, it sounds about, about it. right. Yeah, um, you and John Schaefer. So, how did you connect with John Schaefer and decide that you were going to start talking into the abyss? <laughs>
1: You know, as a mutual friend, uh, I wanted to do a show like that. You know, I was talking to this friend and saying I want to do a, a game design show by game designers for game designers, and you know, I don't know if John was saying similar things or. But for whatever reason, um, our, our friend Bill Adner sort of connected us, and we just we just jumped right into it. We were, uh, I thought we were a great team. I really missed John. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so, did you have experience with? Podcasting in the past or, or producing anything like that? You know, the digital life had started um, a little before that, I think. So there was some experience there. But uh, what, what I had more experience with is uh, for, for some reason, um, the way I learn best is by sharing. And so over the course of my career, I've been in a number of different fields like, um, you know, there's game design, software design, um, the field called brand experience. Um, you know, I was in. Um, so I was a sports historian uh, for a while, and there are a couple other stops along the way. But um, when I'm learning, I like to share, and in sharing, I learn more. So th- over the years, there's been different media. The the one I was using for, for, for sort of my two or three previous reincarnations was blogging. Where you know, right from day one, as I'm learning things, I start to blog blog about them. And you know i my natural way to communicate is sort of um, authoritarian, so there was this weird situation where i'm i'm like a total noob and i 'm just learning, but i'm <laughs> learning in ways I can communicate that sound very smart and knowledgeable so I, I would keep going into new fields very quickly becoming a thought leader because people just assumed I'd been doing it a long time, but then I would sort of you know get get bored and move into a different field and and start all over again um, so I have this serial experience of like, um, of pretty quickly in getting, getting into a new field, becoming, becoming sort of part of the thought leadership community and, um, that really accelerating my learning as well as, um, enhancing my profile, which isn't the reason I do it, but is a nice, um, is a nice secondary benefit. And so with game design, I, I've been just writing a lot in the past, and I was sort of written out um, by that point. So I was interested in in sort of trying podcasting as my my medium to share with, and uh, and so that's that's kind of how it happened. Sure. And how did you come up with uh, the format?
0: You said that you kind of started the podcast with the idea that you wanted to you know learn through discussion and learn from other people. But I guess, how did you even begin, you know, reaching out to guests to come on your show and, and figuring all that out, navigating the uh, tumultuous waters of a new podcast?
1: You know, John and I just just sort of brute forced it. Like, you know, the first show, I think we were just kind of talking about ourselves, you know, like, this is who I am, and this is my perspective. And we were like, okay, now what? You know, it was, um, it was very emergent. Um, in terms of how we got our guests, it definitely started with friends, basically, people we knew. Um, and then friends of friends, and then, uh, you know, certainly as the show, um, as the show became better known, uh, we would, you know, we'd be contacted by people who would recommend other people, just out of the blue, or people who were themselves saying, hey, I'm doing this or that, do you want me to be on your show? Um, but it certainly started with just direct network, friends and family, like, not knowing what it would become or what it should be like. At what point did the show
0: start to become popular? When did you notice that it was starting to grow?
1: I've got to be honest; I have no idea. <laughs> um, I, again, we just did it like it wasn't done as a marketing exercise. So there was never the notion of like how many listeners do we have now. Um, that was just never part of the calculus. There was, there was just some point where we did look. You know, after some dozens of episodes, it's like oh my gosh, like thousands of people are listening to this show. Um, which was cool, but it was totally unexpected, and I have no sense of like what the what the curve looked like going from you know one person, basically our mothers listening to us to you know people <laughs> caring about the show and listening to it. So did you did you market in any
0: way the podcast? Did you I guess uh, advertise in any way in the beginning, or
1: or were you really quite literally just shouting out into the abyss? We were. We were quite literally shouting out into the abyss. I mean, you know, we we may have started a Twitter feed before then. And whenever the show drops, that Twitter feed for the podcast will put out a single tweet that says, hey, check out, you know, this episode with this person. But that's the total extent of our marketing. I mean, we've never spent a dime on advertising. Um, I mean, I guess we have a website for the podcast, but it's pretty, pretty basic. Um, It's just just sort of to have a destination page. Yeah. yeah, it's it's been we've just created, you know, we've just made stuff and it's it's stuff that people people have found interesting. Have you ever worked with sponsorships or used the podcast to bring money in to
0: to fund yourselves?
1: No, no, not a penny.
0: Not a penny. That's fantastic. It's really just designed uh, around the core concept, the idea that the podcast is built on, which which is great.
1: Yeah, yeah, you know, and and I mean, you know, sort of philosophically I'm an anti-capitalist, so the, the idea of like using this joyous creative platform to promote some greedy company of some kind is odious to me. Um, so there's just, I'm sort of philosophical bounds. Like, you know, there's some kind of marketing or advertising we could do externally that would be fine if there was sort of the time, money and attention for it. But like the idea of, you know, you know brought to you by NVIDIA, you know, it's just totally off the table as far as I'm concerned. <laughs>
0: Uh, and that's fair. That's all right. So, uh, Dirk, I mean, this podcast is fairly large and successful at this point, And, you know, it's been around for a long time. Um, and obviously, you are working still in with your company and with game design. What? Uh, how do you balance all of these different things? I mean, the podcast has to take up some time, right? You seem like you must be a
1: pretty busy guy. I am. Um, One of the things that lets me get 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 a lot done is that I don't really prepare for anything. Like when we do when we do the podcast, um, I just kind of roll on. Like, there's no prep, there's no notes. Like, my little alarm goes off ten minutes before. I'm like, oh crap, I have to record. You know, get a drink, go to the bathroom, raise my desk, get the software open. And I mean, I haven't put a second into thinking about the show, preparing for the show. So. You know basically uh, we we changed to a half hour format um earlier this year, and now I would say each episode costs me less than an hour all in um, for for what I do with it so um, the reason I'm able to have a whole bunch of things going on in my life is that i'm I'm just pretty good extemporaneously and I kind of crash in and out of situations um, and and just sort of on my on my feet um, contribute what I have to contribute as opposed to. Um, sort of methodically planning and, and investing time. Sure, that's fair. And if that's a process that works for you,
0: then, then that's fantastic. Um, I don't know that everybody can crash in and out of situations, you know, um, but it seems like you've built something successful on that.
1: Yeah, you know, we've all got our strengths and weaknesses and I, you know, I can be a half-assed guy and still do okay. So that's one of my strengths. <laughs> also one of my weaknesses, of course.
0: Sure, fair enough. Well... What was the thought process behind
1: switching to a half-hour format as opposed to your longer-form podcast? Yeah, you know, the show, um, because it's so dependent on me from an administrative perspective, or at least it it used to be, that's changed a little bit, and I'll talk about that in a second. Sure. Um, It just, the cost was becoming too high, like, uh, you know, because I would have to recruit the guest, um, which takes some amount of time. I would have to roust up the co-hosts and say, okay, time for another show. When are people available? Like That burden was all on me. And I've reached a point in game design where I, I, I know far less than everything, but I also have gotten through the process where I know nothing and there's tons of easy things to learn to get smarter. So the show, um, the show is less enriching for me to do than it was at the beginning when I was a lot less experienced. So um, the it's it 's become harder to to make the same time investment, and so the shows were just coming out much more infrequently. I think we were down to like once a month um, and i didn't i just didn 't feel the energy to to do more than that and so with the digital life show, one thing that we noticed was when we changed for a one hour format to a thirty minute format, our listenership went up um, pretty markedly. And it also then, of course, became faster to do and easier and just a lot of other good things. Um, so I brought that same thinking to the Game Design Roundtable. And then additionally, what I did is went out and recruited some other co-hosts. At the time before all of this happened, it was just myself, David, and Rob brought in two new co-hosts. And additionally, in bringing them in, you know, had them um, sort of commit to the minimal, um, the minimal responsibility of bringing one guest to the show a month. So that started to um, flatten the administrative burden for me and share it with other people. And so the combination of those two things got us back where, you know, we're doing like three shows a month now um, pretty consistently and uh, I think um, pretty sustainably too. So you saw your listenership
0: go up and you're seeing, you know, more consistency. Has having multiple hosts um, helped? Have you gotten response from that from your
1: audience? Yeah, I mean, people people love our our new hosts um, and and our old hosts too. But definitely, I mean, definitely, you know, there was just a tweet the other day that was sort of specifically talking about that. And you know, one of the things um, that we did with with the new hosts was uh, one of them is is Catherine Himes, and it was really important to me to bring bring a female co host on. You know, the show has always been um, you know the legion of white men, and <laughs> I, I that's not. You know something I've long been comfortable with. Um, so as as a start, I wanted to make sure we had at least uh, one female co-host. But um, bringing bringing more women onto the show as guests, um, as well as trying to bring uh, people of color onto the show, has been pretty important to me for a few years. Um, a friend of mine who who's a feminist, I had a, a good conversation with her that really sort of opened my eyes to the the power of um, providing a platform and. And so, you know, we've we've since um, I don't know, certainly since 2014, have made a real point of bringing on more more female guests. And with the new co-hosts, I wanted to make sure that there was more diversity there as well. And Catherine just happened to be in 2016 my absolute favorite guest of the year. I thought she was an incredible guest. And so, um, you know, having her be one of the the people to invite and having her accept was was really wonderful for, for me as one of the stewards of the show, but then our, our listenership is is really loving it as well.
0: That's fantastic. It's great that it seems that you've found a way to connect with your audience and your listenership, um, and that there's a bit of a communication there. Um, how have you found ways to uh, promote that? I mean, it seems like you haven't put anything into marketing or development in that regards, but... It sounds like you're at least aware of what your audience wants and is looking for.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, we haven't put anything again into the promotion or marketing or, or the leveraging of any of that stuff. You know, I mean, there was once upon a time, I don't know, n years ago when I sort of set up a Patreon account with the idea of trying to use Patreon at some point, but never really did that. I've I've had it recommended to me by a couple different people recently to do a Kickstarter for the show and. And raise some money that way, and that probably could be done. But you know, Kickstarter campaigns are expensive in terms of time and, and attention to do really well. So my my life as someone who has a whole bunch of things going on, and again, I'm just kind of crashing from one to the next. I'm I'm the wrong person to organize that kind of <laughs> that kind of infrastructure. Um, although I do think there's an opportunity there. I just don't I don't know how to how to get the right person on board to help um, help to capitalize on it. Well, uh, one thing I wanted to talk to you about was
0: the guests on your show. You've had some um, absolutely fantastic people and people from all different corners of the industry, um, both in, in video games, which obviously our show covers, and uh, in other different aspects of game design um, on your show. How do you go about finding and selecting those guests? You said that hosts bring on different, different people, but you know, at least in my experience, people are busy. It can be hard to get guests onto a show.
1: Yeah. Um, we've been pretty lucky that way. Uh, I would say, I mean, a, a, a vast majority of the people that we've reached out to, either out of the blue or with a shaky, hey, I'm also a friend of Jane, dot, 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 um, have accepted, have have come on. So, um, you know, there's, I don't know, I'm, I'm looking for guests just sort of naturally, but as I step back and think about it, I mean, there certainly is some level of guests that I haven't even tried to get, you know, when you talk about like somebody like a Sid Meier or Richard Garriott, um, those kind of guests, I I haven't even thought to approach. They just seem seem out of reach. But at, if you take one step down from there, I, I feel like most of the people at that level and below, I I can approach and and have them be guests on the show. Um, and I don't know if that's because people are familiar with the show, or I know the right way to ask, or or whatever. Um, but now people, people generally want to appear. What do you think is the right way to ask? Is there a right way to ask? Huh. Um, I just know the way that I ask, you know, so... <laughs> um, I, I don't know, you know, I, 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 being very knowledgeable about them, about the things that they do, I mean, clearly not coming across as a marketing person, but coming across as a fellow game designer who... Um, is aware of their work, who respects their work who wants to um, who wants to have smart conversation about their work as opposed to um, just be a marketing platform um, that tends to to get people excited because people like to have smart conversations and um, you know they I think in general, especially sort of the the farther along you are in your career, the better known you are in your career. Um, you know little marketing platforms as amplifiers aren't that attractive but talking with smart people is always attractive and I think I think that sort of an approach helps
0: absolutely well Dirk I want to ask you some larger scope questions at this point but before we get there what do you see as the future for you what do the next few years look like for Dirk Niemeyer your company and in the podcast
1: I'm not sure. Um, you know, I the the software design company I mentioned in Silicon Valley. It's true that it burnt to the ground, but it, it actually stayed in existence, and it continues to run in the Boston area where I live now. Um, and you know, I'm I'm I have sort of just executive part-time responsibilities at this point, um, but. You know, I have to I have to make a decision from a financial perspective because the games design industry is a really hard one to make money in. I haven't cracked the nut yet on how to make money with it. I've I've gotten to the point where you know a a teeny company that does employ a very small number of people at a very low rate of compensation can be maintained for a period of time, but not one that's making me money um, in general, and certainly not one that's making me money you know relative to the, the place that I live and, and the sort of lifestyle um, that I'm living. Sure. So, you know, I've got to make a decision of what to do when I grow up in a certain way and <laughs> and figure out, you know, is there a way to crack this nut and make this game company um, make, make a, a substantial amount of money or, you know, am I needing to shift back and make it more of a hobby and look at, you know, am I going back into software or... Um, things with futurism, which most of the speeches I give these days are on futurism as opposed to software. Um, just what what to do, what to do with my life. So right now, you know Artana is continuing forward as a small, uh, scrappy hobby tabletop game design company, but whether to sort of double down on trying to make that a real and meaningful company or, to downshift and make it more of a hobby thing i'm gonna to have to figure that out in in the next year or two and depending on that decision i mean that's going to have pretty pretty big pretty big implications on on what i do with other areas of my professional life
0: well that makes sense and i hope that that um goes away that is positive for you guess i'll say that because um, it seems like no matter what you do you're going to continue to pursue your interests and what you're passionate about. That seems like the type of person that you are. So I wish you nothing but the best. All right.
1: Thanks. Thanks. I appreciate it.
0: Absolutely. Well, Hey, just a couple of questions for you before I let you go back to your life. Um, Dirk, one thing that you mentioned uh, much earlier in the podcast was um, kind of a passing comment you made uh, about somebody who had commented on your article before you started working together. You said you like to engage smart criticism positively um how do you do that how do you engage smart criticism positively and how do you deal with criticism
1: that perhaps isn't so smart (laughs) it's tough you know i i actually don't engage criticism well that is um that isn't trying to learn or or contribute to to discourse um i mean for me if 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 i discern that there's someone who is seeking truth who is seeking um seeking exploration uh then it's easy you know because um even if you know they as many of us do as I sometimes do you know approached it in a in a um sort of not super positive way or somewhat antisocial way um you know that's just human nature to some degree of being sort of preemptively defensive in negatively engaging someone else mm-hmm. and so if 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 you just account for that as general human nature and not person personal to you and if you additionally see the desire for exploration i, I it's, then it's just simple for me at least um but i i don't do well at all i'm probably well below average just when people are being being critical basically these this sucks um sort of stuff um that's that's really really hard to navigate and i'm not um emotionally mature enough to to navigate it well I, <laughs> And I'm
0: curious because you must receive criticism, um, both positive and negative, perhaps in both, you know, managing and producing the podcast, whether it's your, you know, tabletop games that you put out in your company. Um, Do those feel different? And
1: do you respond to those in different ways? you know with the podcast i'm sure there's people out there who who hate it and think i'm i'm a jackass on it but i I've, I've never gotten a single negative comment or criticism about that show wow um there's there's nothing i've done in my life i've just gotten more positive feedback on it's it's just puzzling i mean it really makes me sort of <laughs> cock my head and furrow my brow um yeah i mean with the games definitely like um there's people who who love my games and i've read where somebody's like you know there's some new game that we're talking about and people are excited about it. somebody's like oh that's designed by Dirk Niemeyer that's a pass for me you know and it's like oh, oh wow. my god like that doesn't feel good um, and yeah that's the sort of stuff that's harder to harder to engage with but it's funny too right because i know that i feel that way like there's there's designers of games and you know i haven't liked the stuff they've done i i might be willing to try something if somebody said it was fantastic but Otherwise, like if I saw their name on it, I would probably not play it. Now, would I go on a forum and make that remark publicly in a way that they could read it and um, you know sort of have to psychologically deal with the ramifications of it? Certainly not. Um, but I do at least understand that there's people for whom my stuff isn't designed, who who don't like it, and and I'm okay with that. But I don't. It doesn't. It doesn't feel good to be sort of publicly um, besmirched. Well, and accepting
0: that can be difficult sometimes, right? I mean, I know for me personally, if I ever, you know, receive some sort of negative criticism, uh, and maybe this is that emotional maturity you were talking about, uh, I sometimes get in my head, I go, oh, I need to fix this. I need to appeal to this one person who has this issue, and I need to change everything, as opposed to maybe focusing on the many people who are already happy with, you know, what we're doing or what we're making.
1: Yeah yeah it's it's tough you know i i mean i 've got some gray hairs right i 've been either a, a creative director in either name or or in actions for over fifteen years and i've i've gotten to the point where i 'm very good at um, identifying what is meaningful feedback and what is not meaningful feedback, like I know where possible problems are, why they might exist, and I can sort through the things people are saying to separate the wheat from the the chaff so to speak and and that 's just total experience it 's a ton of gray hairs from a lot of managing feedback on creations and designs in in many different media for for an awfully long time
0: sure that's fair i understand that Uh, i think that's sound advice figuring out you know what's important to listen to and what's not well uh let's talk a little bit about marketing because just earlier today i was uh conducting another interview for this podcast and it was all about um you know indie developer marketing and the business side of this and uh, figuring out who your game is for and um, how to put yourself out there and being part of this community that specifically helps people do that and achieve that and then Dirk Niemeyer comes on my show and tells me that he hasn't marketed his podcast once and it's a an extremely successful podcast um, you know what are you doing to me man? <laughs>
1: I don't know what do you think yeah. I'm sorry, you know, I got lucky. I got lucky. I mean, I'll tell you that um not marketing is is an error that I've made all throughout my career as an entrepreneur, going back to my my software design company, which is my first my first business and all of the businesses I've had since then, which are, you know, half a dozen or more. Um the if if you were putting together like a SWOT analysis and it's a business thing, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities and threats, the weakness of of every company I've ever done has always been you know, no no marketing, bad marketing, limited marketing. Um, and a lot of it just comes back to, it comes back to a couple of things. I mean, part of it is philosophy. Again, you know, being an anti-capitalist, feeling uncomfortable, um, being an actor in a capitalist paradigm that is is destroying our ecosystem and um, exploiting people around the world. Sure. Um, but, you know, part of it, um, too, is just getting back to sort of strengths and weaknesses. What, what are the things that I like? What are the things that I'm good at and bad at? And... I like intellectual conversation. I like making things, and I just hate promoting them. Um, you know, I'm, I'm introverted. Um, I tell people I'm autistic, but I'm not. And I use autism as a shorthand for people to understand the fact that I hate being in public spaces. I hate being at parties. I hate I hate being around a lot of people that I don't know. Um, it just is a miserable time for me. I can do it and turn it on, and people are always kind of shocked when I, when I claim autism. Um, Uh, But I I just don't like it. Like, um, I like to be in small groups. I like to talk about ideas. I don't like to promote myself. Um, It's just kind of how I'm wired. So I think we've just been really lucky with the podcast, really fortunate. Whatever, Whatever we did, how we did it, the moment we did it, we kind of struck lightning in a bottle. I wish I could claim something more than that, but I can't. I think it's just luck.
0: Sure. I think, you know... Uh, that's something that I hear a lot often on this podcast from guests is, you know, there's always some element of luck when you hit it big, right? Um, Or when a project takes off. But there has to be an element of quality as well. It can't be solely luck. And as somebody who's listened to your podcast, I mean, it's a good podcast. It sounds great. Um, You know, as you've said, you are obviously somebody who likes to be, you know, in small groups and talk about ideas. And that's what the Game Design Roundtable is is all about um i highly recommend um my listeners if you haven't checked out this podcast yet to go do so uh, especially if you enjoy this one you know obviously ours is solely interview based but the game design roundtable takes things to you know a, a different level um and, and i really enjoy it so uh, dirk thank you for sharing your podcast with all of us and for coming on the show and chatting with me today
1: Oh, the the pleasure is mine and thank
0: you so much for the kind words. Yeah, of course. Turk, well, at the end of every Indie Insider episode, I do ask my guest to share a piece of advice. Uh now, you've already shared some solid advice and some solid ideas already, but is there anything that you would be willing to send people home with today? Something
1: that, you know, has been really important or true for, you know, you and your work? Sure. Yeah, I think um the most important thing in life is is what I call alignment, and that's That requires having a real good knowledge of yourself, a really honest knowledge of yourself, and working towards creating alignment between who and what you authentically are and the context in which you're moving through the world. And if by focusing on alignment, you will create better things, you will have better relationships, you'll have more um, rewarding and successful employment um, situations. Uh, So I really, I really encourage people to. To take the time and have the courage to figure out really who they are, really honestly, and having even more courage to change their life in smaller, large ways, to, to realize alignment between yourself and, and the world around you. That's excellent advice. And it sounds just from talking to you that that you've really
0: worked hard to figure out your own personal alignment. Is that true? Would you say that you've 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 made some headway in that regard? <laughs>
1: Definitely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a struggle. Um, I, I have a high degree of self-awareness for sure. Like on that part, I, I give myself very high marks. But um, making the changes to the structure of your life is, is a tricky one. And especially because the world changes, you change, your circumstances change. So getting alignment in one moment, you know, six months later, a year later, five years later, that can change pretty radically. And sometimes it's not easy to realign. Um, because you have commitments to people, you have commitments to situations. So I think I do pretty well with alignment um, within, you know, the, the constraints of being considerate of and including other people's um, uh, destinies in, in my <laughs> decisions. But um, it's tough. You know, it's tough. I, I definitely am not fully fully aligned, but I'm satisfactorily aligned, which practically speaking is good enough for me. Fair enough. Well, Dirk, that's really sound advice. And thank
0: you for sharing that. And I've really enjoyed talking to you. If other people have enjoyed listening to what you've had to say here, um, and they want to hear more about game design, which we only talked minimally about because you have an entire podcast series that people can go and check out uh, that is just filled with great ideas on game design. How do they find you and your
1: podcast and your work out on the interwebs? Sure so the podcast is at the com. you can also find it on on iTunes and whatever the other platforms are out there i think we're <laughs> we're around um you know my game company is artana a r t a n a and you can see more of our stuff at artana.com i'm not very active on twitter but um you can check me out on twitter because i do post periodically and that's where i connect like the, the latest things i'm creating and my twitter handle is d Nemeyer. that's d K-N-E-M-E-Y-E-R. Also, feel free to email me. I know a lot of people don't like to give out their email address. I've done a lot of um, mentoring over the years, you know, helping, and I I, I get a great deal of satisfaction from that. So, you know, if I can be of service to you either directly or even if you just want to send questions for for our whole panel of co-hosts on the podcast to answer, feel free to email me, Dirk, that's D-I-R-K at Artana, A-R-T-A-N-A dot com
0: awesome Dirk uh again I'm a huge fan of your show I'm excited to continue listening and see what happens next um and see who you have on next and uh I will you know I hope we will stay in touch and I would love to have you back on the show again sometime soon thanks Logan I really appreciate it absolutely um and that's it and we did it we recorded a podcast Dirk Niemeyer host of the game design roundtable and creative director for Artana Thank you for joining us this week. Again, if you have thoughts, questions, or ideas you'd like to share, you can email me at logan at blackshellmedia.com, or reach out on Twitter at Logan A. Schultz. That's L-O-G-A-N-A-S-C-H-U-L-T-Z. This podcast is presented by Blackshell Media, a publishing and marketing firm dedicated to helping independent video game developers reach massive audiences, publish financially successful titles, and turn game development into a career. It's the company's mission to help game developers get more of what they want out of a rewarding opportunity in the game industry. More fans and sustainable revenue to keep them moving forward. Blackshell Media also has an educational branch to their company where they offer free articles and resources for aspiring and growing developers, which is why we get to bring this show to you every single week. You can find Blackshell Media on the web at blackshellmedia.com and on Twitter at @blackshellmedia. This show is on iTunes, Google Play, and other podcast services across the web, as well as the Black Show Media blog. If you enjoy what we're doing here and want us to keep doing it, or if you have things you'd like us to change, please go to your favorite podcast provider and leave us a review so that we can keep sharing these episodes each week with you. Special thanks this week goes out to Raghav Mather, Daniel Doan, and Raquel Hayner, as well as Benjamin Tiso over at bensound.com for the use of his song, Going Higher. I'm Logan Schultz, and you've been listening to Indie Insider. We'll see you next week.